Hello, mystery fans, and welcome to Michael Bradley's None Without Sin. My name's Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each episode of Michael Bradley's None Without Sin. Everyone has secrets. Some of them may kill you. A small town newspaper journalist and a faithless Episcopal priest are on the hunt for a killer with a calling card that mimics a Victorian era religious ritual. This unlikely duo must identify the killer before their own sins are revealed and they become the next victims. None Without Sin is one of those unputdownable books that will have you questioning how deep your secrets are truly buried. It's a book to live in. If you find yourself loving this book as much as we do, CamCat Unwrapped is hosting a giveaway this week where one lucky winner will receive the full audiobook of None Without Sin for free. All you have to do to enter is subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, or newsletter and answer a quick survey, all of which can be linked in our bio. Each new subscription is one entry. So make sure you enter for your chance to win this book to live in. Enjoy. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to None Without Sin now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. The first two episodes of every book can always be found on CamCat Unwrapped, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. So subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped, and if you love this story, you can support the author by buying their audiobook. The story opens with Candace Miller, an Episcopal priest whose insecurities have made her question her faith. Her beliefs are further put to the test when she's called to the scene of the murder of a prominent member of her congregation. CamCat Publishing presents None Without Sin by Michael Bradley Narrated by Rob Shapiro and Lisa Larson For Dennis Jake Gallo and Michael Elwood Canonica, both of whom taught me the allure of creativity the value of having fun, and the importance of being my authentic self. Some rise by sin, and some by virtue fall. William Shakespeare Week 1 Chapter 1 Saturday The loaf of brown bread looked distinctly out of place resting on the dead man's chest, leaving Candace Miller to wonder if all crime scenes contained such incongruities. She expected blood. Yellow police tape? Definitely. But baked goods? This seemed outrageous even for the most imaginative of minds. Yet there it was reminding her of the artisan bread she would get at the steakhouse near the mall. Never going to eat there again, she thought. The scene was not gory, at least not to the degree she had expected. What blood there was had pooled around the man's sternum and left a crimson stain on the front of his white Oxford shirt. 
the round loaf of bread was split down the middle. And the bottom of each half soaked up enough plasma to darken the crust to almost pitch black. The corpse of Robbie Reynolds was stretched out on a black leather sofa along the far wall. His face, which was turned toward the door, was pale and lifeless. His vacant eyes stared at her from across the room. A sensation like a cold finger touched the back of her neck for one brief second. Everything else looked normal. The pool table in the center of the room showed signs of a game in progress, with balls scattered across the green felt. A cue lay nearby on the plush beige carpet, as if it had been dropped on the floor by the dead man. Otherwise, there was no sign of violence. If not for the blood, Candace might have thought Robbie was just napping. Chief Lyle Jenkins nudged her away from the doorway. Down here, Reverend. The police chief moved between her and the door, presumably to block her view, and then gestured toward an archway a few steps down the hall. Candace took one last glance at the dead man. She should have felt a sense of revulsion or been horrified by her first murder scene. But there was only a sense of curiosity, of wonder. Who killed him? Why leave behind a loaf of bread? She stepped from the door and moved along the hall in the direction the police chief had indicated. Such a shame. That's life, Lyle said, his voice deep and brusque. Her jaw tightened with his words. His callousness angered her. But she knew Lyle Jenkins had a reputation of being an unfeeling hard ass. She refused to be goaded by his insensitivity and tried to ignore his remark. She passed through the archway across the hall into the sprawling living room. The early afternoon sun blazed through high windows, bathing everything in a warm light. Detective Mick Flanagan stood beside a stone fireplace opposite the archway. His ginger hair was tussled, his clothing wrinkled, as if he had dressed haphazardly before rushing to the crime scene. A silver badge dangled on a thin chain from his neck. He smiled momentarily. Then his lips sank into a grave frown. He crossed the room to greet Candace. How is Andrea? She asked. Not good. Mick ran his hand through his hair. Thanks for coming. Chief Jenkins leaned in and asked, did she say anything yet? Nothing new, Mick said. Just what she told you earlier. Candace touched Mick's shoulder. Let me talk to her. She needs comfort, not questions. The police chief grunted. That's all fine and dandy, but we've got a crime scene to process. The sooner we can get the family out of here, the better. He turned abruptly and walked from the room. Mick rubbed the back of his neck. Sorry about that. Candace rolled her eyes and shook her head. What happened? He shrugged. Your guess is as good as mine. She found the body when she came home an hour ago. That's all she told us. 
I can't understand why anyone would want to kill him. This seemed like the right thing to say about a murder victim. But Candace knew Robbie Reynolds well enough to know he wasn't without his secrets. In a small city like Newark, rumors were always easy to find. He helped my wife and I buy our first home, Nick said. Give me a few minutes with her. Candace moved to the long Chesterfield sofa, facing the fireplace. Its tan leather was cracked and worn. Andrea Reynolds sat with her head bowed, her shoulders quaking with each sob. Long, ash-brown hair fell forward and obscured her face from view. Andrea clutched a balled-up tissue in her hand. She didn't seem to notice Candace's arrival. Seated at the opposite end of the sofa was Marissa, the Reynolds' preteen daughter. Her hands were folded in her lap, and her eyes held a blank stare. The girl's blonde hair looked shorter than it had on Sunday. Must have got a haircut this week. The Reynolds family always sat in the front row during Sunday service, and it was hard to miss the beaming smile on Marissa's face. The 10-year-old girl had pushed herself as far into the corner of the sofa as possible, as if trying to escape the horror around her. Marissa glanced up at Candace, then dropped her eyes to the floor. Candace approached the sofa and took a seat next to Andrea. She wrapped her arm around the shoulders of the grieving woman, who glanced up to give Candace a feeble smile. Bloodshot eyes bore witness to her anguish. Oh, Candace, Andrea sniffed, then wiped her nose with the tissue. Who would do this? Her voice was broken and soft. Candace stared at her for a long moment, searching for the right words. Despite her time at seminary and her short experience as an Episcopalian priest, she'd always struggled with providing comfort to grieving families in the wake of a loss. Her words seemed inadequate, even trite. There was nothing she could say that wouldn't sound like a cliche, like some canned response to grief. Time heals all wounds. He's in a better place. God will get you through this. That last one, in particular, had been a source of contention for her lately. Andrea, I know it may not seem like it right now, but this pain will pass, Candace said, cringing within as she spoke. Andrea broke into an uncontrolled sob and buried her face in Candace's shoulder. As the woman cried, Candace glanced at Mick. He rolled his eyes and folded his arms as a faint sigh slipped from his lips. She suppressed a semi-panicked urge to giggle. Five years on the force, and he gets more like Chief Jenkins every day. Then, after a further moment's thought, she caught the irony and chastised herself for her own callousness. The seemingly endless stream of Andrea's tears dampened the collar of Candace's blouse. When she lifted her head, 
The woman blotted at her swollen eyes with a tissue. Her face was red and blotchy, with a network of little purple veins on her nose. Mick needs to ask you some questions, Candace said. Do you feel up to talking? Andrea blew her nose on the tissue. I think so. Candace took hold of Andrea's hand and squeezed it. I'll be right here beside you. Mick mouthed a silent thank you to Candace and then said, Andrea, I know this is a difficult time for you, but the sooner you can tell me what happened, Andrea cut him off. We'd gone up to New York City yesterday. She gestured to her daughter at the other end of the sofa. A girl's night out. Andrea dabbed once again at her eyes with a tissue to wipe away fresh tears. Marissa and I took the train up to see a Broadway show. We had dinner before the show and stayed the night at a hotel on Times Square. When did you return home? Mick asked. About an hour ago? Andrea replied. We'd planned to be home earlier, but the train was running late. Candace toyed with a hangnail on her right ring finger. She felt a flutter of guilt for not saying or doing more. But how to behave at a crime scene had not been part of the curriculum at seminary. First murder scene, and I didn't even pray with the widow. Way to go. She looked toward Marissa. The young girl, wearing pale blue jeans with sequins in the shape of a flower on the right pant leg, hadn't moved. She looked distant and afraid, very different from the affable, high-spirited preteen Candace was used to seeing on Sundays. It seemed as if everyone had forgotten Marissa was even in the room. This was not the type of conversation the girl should hear. Sorry to interrupt, Candace said. What about Marissa? Does she need to be here? At the mention of her name, Marissa looked up at them. Her eyes were wide. Until we've cleared the crime scene, you won't be able to stay in the house, Mick said to Andrea. Do you have someplace the two of you can go? Andrea toyed with the tissue in her hand. The flimsy material was creased and shredded. We can stay at my mother's house. She gestured toward Candace. I called her right after I called you. She can take care of Marissa while I... Her words drifted off. Candace rose from the sofa. Why don't I take Marissa upstairs and help her get a backpack? You can stay here. Talk to Mick. Do what you need to do. Andrea stared at her for a moment. Her eyes welled with tears, and she reached out her hand. Thank you. Candace smiled, took the woman's hand, and gave it a reassuring squeeze. Will you be okay? Yeah. There was some hesitation in Andrea's voice. Candace walked to the other side of the sofa and knelt before the young girl. Marissa, how about you come with me? We'll go up to your room and pack your suitcase. You're going to spend a few days at Grandma's house. Marissa didn't move at first. Sweetie, 
Go with Pastor Miller, Andrea said. After a brief glance at her mother, the young girl slipped from the sofa. Candace took the girl's hand and led her from the room. As they moved down the hall toward the stairs, Candace glanced back at the doorway of the room where Robbie Reynolds lay dead. The blood-soaked loaf of bread resurfaced in her memory. That was downright odd. Why would someone leave a loaf of bread on a dead man's chest? Yet the concept seemed eerily familiar somehow, a distant memory she couldn't quite reach. The girls' bedroom looked as if every Disney princess movie had detonated within it. Movie posters from Moana, Frozen, and Tangled hung on the walls. Images from Beauty and the Beast covered the comforter on the twin bed. Small statuettes of the seven dwarfs lined the top of the nearby bookshelf. Candace hadn't been to Disney World, but she imagined this was what almost every gift shop in the park might look like. Marissa crossed the room and sat on the bed, her head bowed, staring at her feet. She bit her bottom lip and said nothing. Candace reached over and put her arm around Marissa's shoulders. The young girl looked up at Candace. Her blue eyes were puffy and bloodshot. Is daddy okay? The question shocked Candace and left her reeling for an answer. How could Marissa not know her father was dead? Wasn't she in the house when Andrea discovered the body? Candace struggled to find the right words. Talking with children had never been her strength. As an only child, she had never had a younger sibling to bond with, never learned the art of relating to adolescents. Her jaw tightened at the idea of being the harbinger of tragic news. Let's not worry about that. Let's pack a few things and get you outside. Your grandma will be here soon. Marissa didn't move, just turned her gaze to the floor and stared. I saw the blood. Mommy doesn't think I saw it, but I did. You saw it? Candace bit her bottom lip. She's going to need years of therapy. The girl nodded. She told me not to look, but I did. There was a pause. Is daddy dead? Candace pulled the girl closer, giving her a comforting squeeze. Marissa stared up at her, a young life untouched by tragedy, until now. As much as she wanted to, Candace knew she couldn't shirk this responsibility. Yes, your father's dead. She waited for the girl to break down, to burst into tears, to kick and scream, to run from the room. But nothing happened. Marissa was silent. Her big eyes filled with sadness. Her mouth curled down in a frown. But her grief seemed subdued, almost controlled, as if the girl had already come to terms with her father's death. Candace touched the girl's arm. 
Let's pack up a few things. Do you have a bag? Marissa nodded, then climbed from the bed and drew a small Cinderella suitcase from beneath it. She set it on the bed and flipped open the top. Pick out some clothes for an overnight stay, Candace said. Make that a few day stay. Marissa wandered over to the nearby dresser and pulled open the top drawer. The young girl picked through her clothes as if having trouble deciding what to take. Candace allowed her gaze to drift to the end table. A paperback rested face down next to the Little Mermaid bedside lamp. She turned it over and read the title. It was a Nancy Drew mystery. She smiled. The mystery at Lilac Inn. I remember that one, she thought. Ghostly apparitions. A stolen inheritance. No murder. Just one in a series of stories that always come with a happy ending. No one gets hurt, and the world is perfect on the last page. When she set the book back down on the bedside table, a glint from the nearby bookshelf caught her eye. She spied a small crystal statuette of an angel sitting on the second shelf. Her pulse quickened for an instant. With the suitcase packed, Candace led the girl from the bedroom and down the stairs. A uniformed police officer waited at the bottom. Two overlapping sheets of plastic had been hung over the doorway leading into the death room. The sheets were attached along the edges of the doorframe with yellow tape. Blurred shapes and figures were all that could be seen through the semi-transparent plastic. Candace was grateful Marissa would be spared any further horror. She nodded at the officer, then led Marissa out of the house and into the afternoon sun. Chapter 2 Brian Wilder downshifted and halted for the traffic light at the bottom of the off-ramp. His two-hour drive along Delaware's Beach Expressway from Rehoboth Beach had been a blur. The Friday night birthday party had gone into the early hours of the morning, forcing him to crash in the couch of Chris Carson, the birthday boy himself. Amber Fox, morning host at WREB-FM, had thrown a surprise birthday party for her co-host, Chris. Brian had the dubious responsibility of getting him to the Mexican restaurant for the party. He never realized how difficult it would be to keep a surprise from a blind man. They'd only just stepped across the restaurant's threshold when Chris leaned toward Brian to ask how many people were waiting in the back room for them. It wasn't until later in the evening that Chris explained how he knew. Did someone let slip about the party? Brian had asked. Chris shook his head. Not at all. It was a perfectly planned surprise party. <laughs> but how? How don't I know? Chris said. Do you remember the loud music playing when we entered the restaurant? Yeah, but what's... What about the soccer game on the bar TV? No. Chris smiled. And the woman at the bar nagging her husband about his drinking? Brian shook his head. Nope. Then you probably didn't hear Amber in the back room trying to shush everyone when we arrived. <sighs> No, Brian sighed. Can't say I did. 
He had known Chris Carson for years before the accident that robbed the radio DJ of his sight. Chris was just as much a smartass now as he had been then, perhaps more so. When the light changed, Brian turned left, heading toward downtown Newark. The 50-plus-year-old car roared up the street and brought a smile to his face. The candy apple red Mustang was one of the few luxuries he allowed himself. Brian was meticulous in his care and maintenance of the Mustang. If only he'd put that level of care into his relationship with Allison, his daughter. A sense of guilt washed over him. He glanced at his mobile phone in the passenger seat. He toyed with the idea of calling her, but their last call had ended in a fierce argument, just like so many others. No point in upsetting her weekend, he thought. The car raced across an overpass. Northbound traffic on the interstate below was backed up, creeping along. Early beachgoers on their way to the Jersey Shore. Although the morning was windy, the weekend was shaping up to be the first nice one of the month. Rain, cold temperatures, and the occasional snow flurry had made the first two weeks of March less than pleasant. This third week, with temps in the mid-60s, seemed to be the trigger for everyone to emerge from a self-induced winter hibernation. As he glided past a slow-moving U-Haul, his mobile phone rang. He slipped the hands-free earpiece into his ear and pressed the button to answer. Yo, Brian, where are you? Jessica O'Rourke asked. The part-time newspaper photographer spoke quickly, her young, throaty voice full of excitement. Just got off the highway, he said. Maybe ten minutes out, why? The police scanner's blowing up. Something's rotten in Newark. Cops and paramedics have converged on Annabelle Street. Sounds serious, she said, her words coming out in rapid fire. Brian narrowed his eyes. Annabelle Street was in a select neighborhood on the north side of Newark. Half-million-dollar houses, Land Rovers and Mercedes in driveways. The mayor had a house in the neighborhood. So did the dean of Northern Delaware University. Thanks for the tip. Look, Jessica said, a hint of hesitation in her voice. I've got a wedding to shoot in three hours. I can't meet you there. Brian smiled. No worries. I've got my camera in the trunk. His years as a journalist had taught him to be flexible, often taking photos for his own articles. A photographer by his side was a luxury he'd learned to do without. His pictures would never be as good as Jessica's, but they'd be just fine for the newspaper. You can criticize my picture-taking skills later. How was the party? she asked. Heavy traffic slowed Brian's approach into the city of Newark. He braked as the line of cars ahead came to a crawl. You missed a good time. He thought again about the previous night. Chris was disappointed you weren't there. She sighed. Chris Carson's crush on Jessica was public knowledge, as was her unwillingness to be tied down in any relationship. He'll get over it, she said. Brian laughed. Go to the wedding. Enjoy yourself. Three police cars were parked in front of a house on Annabelle Street, and an ambulance was backed into the driveway. Brian parked the Mustang along the curb a few houses up the block. 
Before climbing from the car, he reached into the glove box and dug out a spiral notebook and a pen. From the trunk, he grabbed a black camera bag and slung it over his shoulder. As he walked along the sidewalk, he noticed a small crowd of onlookers across the street. The house at the center of everyone's attention was a modern take on a classic Victorian. A police officer leaned on the white railing of the wraparound porch. A two-story turret rose high above the house, black shingles covering its peak. The white siding was bright in the afternoon sun. Brian recognized the house. It belonged to Robbie Reynolds. He sifted through a mental dossier of the man. Robbie Reynolds, mid-forties, married with one child. Wife's name is Andrea, born and raised in Delaware. Attended and dropped out of Northern Delaware University. Local real estate agent, no, local real estate mogul. Self-proclaimed king of Newark real estate. The facts came readily to mind, as did the rumors. Egotist, gambler, womanizer. As Brian approached a nearby police car, he was surprised to find Father Andrew Blake in conversation with Sergeant Stacy Devonport. The priest's black hair was peppered with specks of gray. A few strands above his forehead waved with the afternoon breeze. He wore his customary black tab collar shirt and slacks. A black jacket hung awkwardly from Andrew's gaunt frame, looking like it was a size too big. The priest's presence was puzzling. As far as Brian knew, the Reynolds family wasn't Catholic. Stacy shook Brian's hand and smiled. I bet I can guess what brings you here. The same reason that brought you. He turned to Andrew. I'm surprised. I don't recall ever seeing the Reynolds at St. Matthew's. How would you know, Brian? Andrew folded his arms and tilted his head to the side. You're not exactly a regular attendee at Sunday Mass. Stacy laughed at the priest's rebuke. <laughs> He's got you there. Brian shrugged off their remarks. I've been busy. It was easier to lie than try to explain why he'd not been to church in a while. He gestured toward the house. What's going on, Stacy? Why the heavy police presence? I can't tell you much. She arrested the roll of crime scene tape on the trunk of the police car. I've been relegated to crowd control, haven't been inside. Brian glanced at the crowd across the street. Ten, maybe eleven people. Yeah. I see you've got your work cut out for you. Stacy folded her arms. Hey, if that throng gets out of hand, that's a throng? Brian raised an eyebrow. He let the moment linger before straightening up and narrowing his eyes. Seriously, what's going on? Suspicious death. Stacy turned her gaze toward the house, then back at Brian. Robbie. A slight heaviness pressed down on his shoulders. Brian's dealings with the real estate agent were infrequent and always all business. Robbie ran a weekly half-page ad in the Monday edition of the newspaper, but often sent it along with a check in the mail. Brian's only other dealings with the man had been when he first arrived in Newark. Robbie was the real estate agent who helped Brian find the building that now served as the office of the Newark Observer. Since then, Brian rarely had to see the man face to face, but that only meant the pang of grief was momentary. 
A death was still a death, after all. How? All I know is it's suspicious, she shrugged. Nothing else. Brian gestured toward a black Dodge Charger parked up the street. I see he's here already. The chief? Yeah, he's in there now. Want me to tell him you're here? Brian gave a nod and Stacy spoke into the radio mic attached to her shoulder. He flipped open the notebook, made a couple notations, and closed it again. He'll be right out, she said. Word of warning, he's not in the best of moods. He's missing his grandson's little league game for this. Thanks for the heads up. Where's Flanagan? Couldn't he handle this? Stacy gestured toward the house. He's here too, but you know how the chief is. He's got to stick his nose into every investigation. She looked over at the crowd, which had now grown to twelve people. If you'll excuse me. As Stacy strode off, Brian turned back to Andrew. The priest stared across the lawn at the Reynolds family home, arms hanging limp at his sides, his eyes wet and dull. Brian touched the priest's shoulder. Andrew? Man's propensity to commit violence against another never ceases to amaze me. Andrew slipped his hands into his trouser pockets and sighed. You've probably seen that more than most people. How do you get used to it? Brian mulled over the remark. A 22-year journalism career had certainly shown him the darkest sides of human brutality. He'd covered two wars in the Middle East, been at ground zero on 9-11, reported on the violence between the drug cartels in South America. Then there were more natural disasters than he could remember, all for Time, Newsweek, and a dozen other magazines and newspapers. He'd seen more death than one man probably should. You don't, he finally said. Brian watched the black van from the county medical examiner's office drive past and pull into the driveway. Why are you here? Andrew rocked on the balls of his feet. I'm just a chauffeur. Do you know Candace Miller, pastor at Trinity Episcopal Church? No. He paused for a second his lips thinned to a downward arch. Remind me to introduce you. Anyway, we were meeting at the rectory for our weekly chess game. Brian knew of the church on the corner of Haines Street and Delaware Avenue, but he couldn't recall ever meeting the pastor. He made a mental note to take Andrew up on his offer of an introduction. You found a sucker who doesn't mind losing all the time? Andrew snorted with amusement. We're pretty evenly matched, thank you very much. We were just settling down to play when Candace got the call about Robbie. His wife called. They go to Candace's church. I offered to drive her. So, driving Ms. Miller? Andrew turned to look at the house. You could say that. A flurry of activity outside the house caught Brian's eye. Police Chief Lyle Jenkins stepped from the house, paused at the base of the porch steps, then moved across the lawn toward Brian and Andrew with purposeful strides. A moment later, two additional people emerged from the house. Brian recognized Marissa Reynolds, but the woman with her was a stranger. 
She was petite with dark hair and wore a lavender windbreaker. The woman carried a small, bright-colored suitcase. She guided Marissa to a porch swing, and they sat together. Brian was still studying the pair when Lyle Jenkins approached. The stout police chief, dressed in faded blue jeans and a gray polo, wore his holster and gun belt low on his waist. A gold badge hung from his neck on a silver chain and bounced off his chest. The touch of gray in his black hair was highlighted by his dark complexion. Wilder, how did I know you'd show up here? He held out his hand. Brian returned the hearty handshake. You going to give me a scoop? Or do I have to wait for the press conference? Lyle cocked his head. How exclusive can you really be with that rag of yours? Brian snorted, knowing the chief had a point. The Newark Observer was a twice-weekly newspaper. Even if he was the first to a story, the larger news outlets would have covered it ad nauseum before the next issue of The Observer hit the streets. I hear it's murder, Brian said. Andrew shook his head and made a sound. I believe the words used were suspicious death. That's all you're getting at the moment, Lyle said. He then leaned toward Brian conspiratorially. Off the record, Flanagan's got his hands full with this one. He glanced around, then hitched his thumb into his belt. Where's your sidekick? Shooting a wedding. Brian tapped the camera slung over his shoulder. I'm on my own. A gray Chevy Malibu slowly pulled up to the entrance of the driveway. The driver seemed confused as to where to park, first attempting to pull into the driveway behind the medical examiner's van. Then, thinking better of it, the driver backed up and drove past the house to park along the curb. An elderly woman climbed from the car and headed for the house. She was stopped at the end of the driveway by two police officers. Their conversation started cordially enough, but when it was clear the officers weren't going to let her pass, she became more animated. Her arms flew in wild gestures pointing at the house. From where he stood, Brian heard the woman's voice grow louder as she became more frustrated. Daughter needs me. Don't you have any sympathy for what's happened here? The woman placed her hands on her hips, almost as if she were daring the officer to stand in her way. Obviously, she was a force to be reckoned with. Brian took pity on the officer. It was probably not going to be a battle he would win. Grandma! The cry came from the front porch. Marissa leapt from the porch swing and ran down the steps. The grandmother pushed past the police officers and met her granddaughter halfway. They embraced, and Marissa appeared to break down into tears. Lyle let out a gruff sigh and shook his head. I need to take care of this. Chief, I'd like to check on Candace, if you don't mind, Andrew said. Lyle's eyes tightened and his lips curled down. He pointed at the house. That is a crime scene, not a social club. Andrew folded his arms. Even the comforter needs to be comforted sometimes. Lyle allowed a loud sigh to slip from his lips. 
a clear sign of reluctant capitulation. Fine, come with me, Lyle finally said. You can go as far as the porch, but stay out of the house, understand? The police chief turned and started toward the house, Andrew just steps behind. Brian shrugged his shoulders and took a step forward to follow. Not you, Wilder, Lyle said, without looking back. Chapter 3 Candace carried Marissa's suitcase down the driveway to where the girl and her grandmother were standing. The young girl was enveloped in the elderly woman's embrace, sobbing. Candace had only met Andrea's mother once before. She tried to remember her name. Audrey? Susan? I'm sure it started with an S. A flash of recognition appeared in the other woman's eyes. Pastor Miller, thank you, the elderly woman said. The skin on her hand was pale and translucent, with blue veins bulging in streaks across the back. Not sure if you remember. We've met before. I'm Andrea's mother, Nancy Barrett. Candace shook Nancy's hand, feeling the knuckles ravaged by years of arthritis beneath her fingers. Yes, I remember, but with an S. Thank you for bringing Marissa out to me, Nancy said. Have you seen my daughter? How's she doing? Candace felt a sudden chill. She wasn't sure if it was from the faint breeze that blew across the yard or the horror of the crime scene within the house. The police are talking to Andrea now. She's holding it together, but only just. Please tell Andrea to call me when the police are done with her. I'll come back and pick her up. Nancy patted Marissa gently on the shoulder and gazed down at the young girl. Let's get you home with Grandpa. After Marissa left with her grandmother, Candace walked back toward the house. She was surprised to find Andrew waiting for her near the porch steps. His hands were deep in his trouser pockets, arms pressed close to his body, and his shoulders were hunched forward, as if he were cold too. He smiled as she approached. Just wanted to check on you. I'm sorry. Candace said. With all that was happening, she'd forgotten Andrew had driven her to the crime scene. A twinge of guilt surfaced in her mind. I've ruined your afternoon. Go ahead and leave. I'm sure I can get a lift back from the police. No, no. Andrew waved his hand. I'm happy to wait. I wanted to see how you were holding up. Before she could respond, Movement in the nearby doorway caught Candace's attention. Two officers were carrying a stretcher out of the house. A black body bag was strapped on top. Candace touched Andrew's arm and guided him out of the way. I'm fine, she lied. She was supposed to be a well-trained, devout minister, able to cope with the death of her parishioners. But at that moment... She felt more like a snake oil salesman. She knew all the words and all the actions. But did she believe them herself? 
she gestured toward the door. I should go back in and see how Andrea's getting along. You want me to go with you? She waved him away. I think Lyle would have an aneurysm if he caught you in there with me. Andrew gave her an encouraging smile. Do what you have to. I'll be waiting out here whenever you're ready to leave. Queasiness surged in her stomach at the thought of re-entering the house. It wasn't so much about the corpse, which wasn't even in there anymore. Robbie Reynolds was dead, and nothing she could do would change that. It was the living she didn't want to face. She didn't want to see Andrea or Mick again. Didn't want to return to a state of fruitless inaction. Donning the mask of faithful comforter was an unwelcome duty she could have done without. Candace drew in a deep breath, like one she might take before diving into deep water, then climbed the porch steps toward the door. Inside, she found that the plastic sheeting that had earlier covered the door of the death room was pushed aside. Although the body had been removed, the signs of what had happened remained. Candace could see a pool of congealed blood on the leather sofa where Robbie had lain. A police officer snapped photos of every item in the room from multiple angles. The repeated flashes of bright light from the camera left gray orbs in her vision. The bread sat on the pool table, sealed in an evidence bag. Something kept nudging at the dark recesses of her mind. A sense of familiarity, but she couldn't figure out why. Candace returned to the living room, and instead of sitting on the sofa, stood near the fireplace behind Mick. Andrea was, for the second or perhaps third time, repeating the details of the discovery of her husband's body. Robbie doesn't, didn't care much for the theater, that's why he didn't go with us, Andrea said. Candace studied her face from across the room. The cracks of frustration and exhaustion showed in Andrea's expression. The deep furrow of her brow, heavy eyelids, downward slope of her lips showed the toll this had taken. Andrea seemed to have aged a couple years just in the minutes Candace had been out of the room. Mick continued his questioning. How have things been with your husband's business? Any issues lately? None that I know of. I'm involved with the business in name only. He listed me as a majority owner to take advantage of incentives offered to women-owned businesses. Andrea thought for a moment, then added, He's been anxious about something over the past few weeks. Mick's eyes brightened. Do you know what? No, he wouldn't tell me. Did your husband have any enemies? Mick said. Candace snorted aloud. It was such a cliched question that she thought they only asked it in television cop shows. Mick glanced at her with a puzzled look, then continued with his questioning. The sun had sunk beneath the horizon by the time she emerged again from the house. The small crowd across the street was gone. The spectacle, having grown boring to watch, 
now that the ambulance and much of the police presence was gone. Candace found Andrew sitting on the porch swing, rocking slowly back and forth. His head was low, and he picked at the cuticles of his fingers. The porch light bathed his face in shadow, making his sunken cheeks appear as great chasms in his face. As she approached, he rose to his feet and smiled. Ready? he asked. Candace nodded, feeling too exhausted to speak. She followed him off the porch and along the sidewalk toward his car. As she walked, Candace fought the urge to look back at the house. Like Lot's wife, she knew casting a backward glance would bring unwelcome consequences, but the urge was too strong. She turned to look at the Reynolds house. Her mind flooded with all too fresh memories of Robbie's vacant expression. His cold, empty stare was unlike anything she'd seen before. In her experience, the dead didn't stare back. Their eyes were always closed when she saw them at the funeral. She didn't have to stare deep into the dark void of their empty soul. On their ride back to the rectory at St. Matthew's Catholic Church, neither of them seemed interested in talking. Candace caught glimpses of Andrew's face beneath the passing streetlights. His eyes were fixed on the road ahead. His gaze seemed distant. Candace slouched in the passenger seat and fingered the small object in her jacket pocket. She glanced at one of the houses they passed along North Chapel Street, noting the obvious evidence of a party in its infancy. College students lounged on the front porch, plastic solo cups in every visible hand. Muffled music drifted from the open front door. The early evening revelry seemed to be in opposition to the anguish still being felt only a few blocks away. Once in the driveway of the rectory, Andrew turned off the car, and the two of them sat in silence beneath the gleam cast from the dim light above the garage door. Neither moved to exit the vehicle. Candace stared out the window at the silhouette of the church at the end of the block. St. Matthew's towered over the other buildings, and the centuries-old church looked ominous beneath the moonlight. Candace turned toward Andrew. Have you ever dealt with a murder before? She asked. At first, it seemed like Andrew hadn't hurt her. He kept his gaze straight ahead, as if he were refusing to look at her. When he did speak, his voice was almost a whisper. Murders are rare in Newark. She turned her gaze away from him and stared out the windshield at the darkened windows of the garage door. The blackness beyond the glass seemed to swallow all light. Probably won't sleep well for a few days, she said. Violence can leave an indelible mark on even the casual observer. Candace checked her watch and sighed. It was 8.35 already, and she still had to put the finishing touches on her sermon for the next morning's service. I'd better go. Thanks for being there today. It meant a lot.
Her Subaru was parked along the street just up from the rectory. Once in her car, Candace reached into the pocket of her windbreaker and her fingers wrapped around the small, cold object. She held it up to the windshield, so the light from a nearby street lamp reflected off the crystal angel. The light twinkled off the ridges of the tiny wings when she turned it around in her fingers. She sighed. Another shiny object she hadn't been able to resist. Stealing from the daughter of a murder victim. Candace slipped it back into her pocket, started her car, and drove off. Chapter 4 Sunday Sweat beaded on Candace's forehead as she jogged up her driveway and stopped by the front door of her cottage. She bent forward, hands on her knees, and gasped for air for several moments. Her early morning three-mile run usually served to energize her for the busy day ahead. It was particularly important for her on Sundays to be alert and clear-minded to lead her congregation through the morning service. But this morning... Candace was so exhausted that she barely made it a mile before turning back. Although she'd arrived at home before nine o'clock the night before, she found herself pacing her small house, still tossing the events of the day around in her head. When she eventually did make it to bed, sleep eluded her. Candace tossed and turned and thought about Robbie Reynolds, his wife and daughter, and the murder scene. But what really had kept her from sleeping was the loaf of bread. Once her breathing had slowed, Candace unlocked the door and stepped into her house. She went straight to the kitchen, made herself a fruit smoothie, and carried the cold drink upstairs to her small bedroom. At the desk in the corner, she lifted the lid of her laptop. The blue light from the screen radiated through the darkened bedroom. Candace yawned as she studied the text displayed on the screen for that morning's sermon. Riveting stuff. I'm putting myself to sleep. After showering and dressing, she returned to the computer and pulled up a local television station website. At the top of the screen, she found an article covering yesterday's murder. There were not a lot of details, just a general summarization of the few facts that police made available. Approximate time the body was discovered, the victim's name, a brief bio about Robbie Reynolds, and the usual police are still investigating statements. To her surprise, there was no mention of the bread she saw at the crime scene. Candace leaned back, a loaf of bread resting on a corpse at a murder scene couldn't possibly be normal. It was the kind of thing that would cause a sensation and be listed as an unusual side note in any true crime book or television show. But besides watching old reruns of Unsolved Mysteries when she was a kid, Candace wasn't much into that kind of entertainment. So why did it seem familiar? She checked the alarm clock on the bedside table. She had 20 minutes to kill before it was time to head over to the church for the morning service. On the laptop, 
she started a series of internet searches, changing up her key search words each time. The first search resulted in several so-called killer bread recipes, links to various bakeries, and a news article about a mother who had murdered her two-year-old child by stuffing his mouth with bread. She cringed at that last one, wondering what would drive a parent to commit such a heinous act. Additional searches brought more recipes, and several more news articles where bread played a part in a crime. But nothing seemed to match what she had seen the day before. The loaf of bread on Robbie Reynolds's chest had been cleanly split down the middle. Its positioning almost made it look like some kind of ritual or sacrifice. She expanded her internet search and found several biblical references to the Last Supper, but nothing else that seemed relevant. She pushed back from the desk, interlocked her fingers, and stretched. Candace arrived at church 15 minutes late. Sylvia Bavistock was already waiting on the front steps. The elderly church organist squinted through tortoiseshell glasses with pursed lips that conveyed her irritation at Candace's tardiness. There were still 45 minutes before the service started, but Sylvia was almost zealot-like in her preparatory timetable, which included a full hour of warm-up before the service began. While Sylvia scurried off to the organ, Candace lit the candles around the sanctuary and went through her usual Sunday morning routine. It was a mindless tedium that she followed like an automaton. As she prepared for the service, Candace wondered how she should address Robbie's death with the congregation, or if she even should. Most of the congregation would have heard the news by now. There was little that Candace could add to what had already been reported. As her congregants began to filter into the church, Candace noted several people clustering together in fervent conversation. The topic of discussion, she assumed, had to be Robbie Reynolds. On any normal Sunday morning, Candace would wait until it was time to start the service to emerge from the vestry, the back room that served as a dressing room of sorts. But today, she decided to emerge early and mingle. She felt an overwhelming desire to hear what her flock was saying, thinking, and feeling about Robbie's death. Her cassock danced effortlessly across the sanctuary floor as Candace moved slowly from one small group to another, greeting individuals and eavesdropping on conversations. Much of what she heard were words of shock and grief. A few had words of praise for Robbie's generosity with local charities. Some spoke of their concern for Robbie's grieving wife and child. But one or two had darker words. Wonder if Andrea finally got sick of his antics, someone said. He wasn't the most faithful of husbands, another remarked. A moment of annoyance gripped Candace. She gritted her teeth and moved off to a silent corner of the sanctuary. The man was dead, and yet some people still resorted to gossip. She clenched her fists 
as the temptation to substitute her sermon with a lecture on respecting the dead rose from within. But it faded moments later, as the hypocrisy dawned on her. No point in lambasting her whole congregation for the words of a few inconsiderate assholes. She snorted at the thought. That wasn't a word she readily used, and for it to surface now made her wonder if she was far more exhausted than she realized. Pastor Miller, a frail voice said. Candace hadn't seen Agatha Bowman approach, and was startled at the elderly lady's voice. She studied the lines of Agatha's face and marveled at the 83-year-old history engraved there. Folds of pale, translucent skin hung from her chin. Her gray hair was thinning in front and looked dry and brittle. Agatha held a cane in one hand and a plate covered with aluminum foil in the other. I heard about Robbie, Agatha said. So sad. Yes, it's a real tragedy. I heard about it on the news late last night. You were probably up late providing comfort to Andrea. It was a bit late, Candace admitted. I figured you'd need a pick-me-up today. Agatha peeled back the aluminum foil and held the plate out to Candace. I baked you a batch of chocolate chip cookies. Thank you, Candace said, smiling. She reached for a cookie and took a bite. Her annoyance melted away as the sweetness of the chocolate filled her mouth. Agatha pressed the plate into Candace's hand. They're all for you. Candace carried the plate into the vestry and left it on the table in the corner. Before stepping back into the sanctuary, she paused and reached for another cookie. The organ summoned the congregation to their seats. Candace climbed the three steps to the carved wooden pulpit and watched as people filed into the pews and picked up their hymnals. She raised her outstretched arms. Welcome, everyone. It's a beautiful day to be in the Lord's house. Before we begin, I'm sure that you've all heard the tragic news about Robbie Reynolds. I'm not going to dwell on his death during today's service, but if anyone needs to talk, please feel free to reach out to me. My door is always open. Even as her words hung in the air of the silent sanctuary, Candace knew no one would take her up on the invitation. They never did. In her two years at the church, only one person had sought her guidance. That was Robbie Reynolds, and all he'd wanted was the name of a good therapist. The organ came to life again, filling the sanctuary with a low rumble. As Candace prepared to lead the congregation in the first hymn, she gazed down at the empty first row, a row that she never remembered being empty before. The row where Robbie Reynolds and his family sat every Sunday. Chapter 5 
Brian slipped quietly into St. Matthew's Catholic Church and took a seat in the last pew at the back. Sunday Mass had already begun. Andrew's white and green robes were embroidered in gold thread, creating an intricate vertical design of what looked like intertwined vines down the front. He stood before the altar with his hands clasped in front of him. The Lord be with you, the priest said. In unison, the congregation responded, And with your spirit. Brian muttered the responses along with everyone else. As a child, Brian had been indoctrinated into the rituals and traditions of the Catholic Church. His parents had been devout in their beliefs and had ensured he received his education at the best Catholic school in the Asheville area, Paul VI High School. Although they never said it aloud, Brian thought his parents had a secret hope he'd become a priest. He'd seen the faint look of disappointment in his mother's eyes when he announced his intention of becoming a journalist. The search for tangible truths outweighed that of the intangible. Faith in the unseen was far more difficult to encapsulate into 2,000 words. Brian now considered himself a lapsed Catholic, showing up for Mass on the odd Sunday. It was usually Sarah's prompting that would get him out of his apartment and into the church. Go talk to Father Blake, she'd say. Out of guilt, Brian would give in and make an appearance at St. Matthew's. He'd sit in the back, recite the litany of responses with the rest of the congregation, and at the end of Mass, talk to Andrew. The conversation would be friendly and mundane. Afterward, he'd feel guilty for not mentioning the real reason he was there, or the real reason he needed to talk. He simply couldn't bring himself to admit that he needed help. Andrew led the congregation through Sunday Mass while Brian observed quietly from the back row. Something was off about the priest's delivery. He stumbled over his words through the gospel reading, as well as the homily. Brian even noticed a tremble in Andrew's hands when he lifted the chalice of wine into the air during the blessing. At one point during the prayer after communion, Andrew paused awkwardly, seeming to lose his train of thought. Unable to resume the prayer, the priest quickly ended it with an abrupt, Amen, leaving the congregation confused. After the Mass ended, people dispersed and began to file out of the church. A few congregants stood in the center aisle and chatted while inattentive, bored children distracted themselves by crawling along the pews. Brian made his way up the side aisle of the church, passing a young mother in a pale blue dress. She was deep in conversation with two other women while her young son tugged again and again at her arm. A futile attempt to persuade her that it was time to leave. She seemed quite adept at ignoring her child's pestering. A few pews ahead, Andrew was speaking with a man whom Brian vaguely recognized. A few moments of rummaging through his memories returned the recollection of a banquet at the university. The man with the thinning hairline was a lecturer, but Brian still struggled to put a name to the face. When he approached the two men, Andrew lifted his eyebrows in mock surprise. The prodigal son returns, he extended his hand, which Brian shook heartily. Mr. Wilder, it's good to see you again, the other man said. Andrew looked between them. 
Alex, you've met Brian. It was Brian who answered. Yes, at a university function. The Honor Society Banquet, Alex added. Alex Brennan. The name emerged from Brian's memory. He smiled as he recalled a pretentious evening of speeches, students in ill-fitting suits, and stuffy academics who babbled incessantly about their chosen topic. Not the most exciting story he'd covered. Alex Brennan's own level of pomposity that evening, as Brian remembered, had been the lowest among those in attendance. Andrew placed his hand on Brian's shoulder and smiled. What brings you back to the church, my son? Have you turned over a new leaf? Andrew's touch was gentle but firm. Brian laughed. You make it sound like I haven't been here for years. It's been a month. Two at tops. At least you're here. That's what matters. Before any of them could say another word, a woman, dressed plainly in a navy dress and gray cardigan, appeared beside Alex. Her salt and pepper hair was drawn back away from her round face. The pudgy cheeks were red, and her eyes were cast down toward the floor. She clutched a battered hymnal against her chest. Alex gave her a passing glance, then frowned as if her presence came as an unwelcome intrusion. Brian, he said, you may remember my wife, Antonia. Brian didn't remember seeing her at the banquet, but nodded politely anyway. Her only response was a momentary glance in his direction, then her eyes returned to stare at the floor. Turning to the priest, Brian said, You got a second to talk about yesterday? Andrew's shoulders shuddered, and the color seemed to fade from his face. It took a moment for him to recover some composure. Horrible business. Absolutely horrible. The Reynolds murder? Alex asked. Brian nodded, but said nothing. He preferred to speak with Andrew alone, and now regretted bringing up the topic in front of Alex. Such a shame. Alex said. I heard it was a brutal scene. Brian wondered where Alex got his information. He'd had little luck yesterday getting even the most basic details out of Chief Jenkins. He was hoping Mick Flanagan would be more forthcoming tomorrow. He glanced at Alex. Did you know Robbie? Alex shrugged. Everyone in Newark knew Robbie Reynolds, but I was never personally acquainted with the man. Andrew clasped his hands together. He was quite a stalwart in the business community. His death will certainly be felt for a long time. A slight movement caught Brian's eye. Alex's wife was fidgeting quietly behind her husband. She had remained so quiet, Brian had almost forgotten she was there. When he glanced in her direction, she shifted further behind Alex, pressing herself into his back. Alex, for his part, whipped around, glaring down at his spouse. His voice was low and gruff. What? Can't you see I'm talking? She whispered something Brian didn't quite hear. 
Alex turned briefly to excuse himself, then gripped her arm and led her a few feet away. Brian watched while the couple spoke in hushed tones. He couldn't help but notice the white-knuckle grip Alex had on his wife's arm. Although she looked uncomfortable, Antonia made no attempt to break free. She remained silent, giving almost imperceptible nods as her husband spoke at length. Brian glanced at Andrew, who looked uncomfortable and had diverted his attention away from the couple. After a few moments, Alex released his wife's arm with a slight push. She shrank away and moved along the aisle toward the church doors. Alex stepped back toward Brian and Andrew. The smile on his face looked forced. My apologies. Tony's not feeling well. She's a bit distressed over the news about Robbie Reynolds. He shrugged his shoulders. Actually, she's quite stupid about things like this. Very stupid indeed. Brian exchanged a glance with Andrew. They seemed to share the same distaste for Alex's choice of words. I should be on my way, continued Alex. Need to get her home and set her straight, if you know what I mean. As Alex walked off, Andrew shook his head and spoke softly so only Brian could hear. That poor woman. I've never seen any signs of actual physical abuse, but she's certainly been beaten into submission. They let their conversation fall into a silence as the remaining congregants worked their way out of the church. A few were still clustered in the corners talking and laughing amongst themselves. Brian recalled similar moments from his childhood. His parents had been active in their Asheville church, and he could always count on the hour-long mass being followed by an hour of socializing. He remembered patiently waiting every Sunday for his parents to finish talking with their friends. Then it was off to the local diner for lunch. He had the same sense of isolation in church now as he did when he was a child. It was a world of beliefs and rituals with which he'd never quite become comfortable. He glanced at Andrew. You got a few minutes? Andrew didn't answer immediately. He instead stared blankly toward the back of the church. His lips formed a frown and his eyelid twitched. Then he said, Sorry, Brian, I forgot I've got to be somewhere. Andrew made a point of glancing at his watch. Actually, I'm late. We'll talk later. With that, Andrew turned and walked swiftly toward a door off the right side of the altar. The priest's flowing robes skirted along the floor with each rapid footstep. Brian watched his departure with curiosity. He'd never known the priest to run from a discussion. At least, not without a solid explanation. Chapter 6 Monday Brian rose early Monday morning. He'd struggled to sleep the night before, tossing and turning most of the night. He crossed to the windows at the front of his apartment and opened the blinds to gaze down on Main Street. With the sunrise still an hour away, the thoroughfare was shrouded in darkness. The second-floor apartment, above the office of the Newark Observer, was small, with two back bedrooms and an eat-in kitchen off the living room. It wasn't much, but it was home. 
Outside, a faint mist was coating the street and sidewalks with a glistening sheen of moisture. It would only worsen into rain as the day went on, if the weather forecast held up to its prediction. The Dunkin' Donuts across the street and the Starbucks a block down were the only stores showing any activity at five in the morning. Brian watched a young couple exit the coffee shop, large cups in hand, and walk along Main Street toward the university. He noted the man held an umbrella but had neglected to put it up. Brian moved into the kitchen and rummaged through the refrigerator. He found the ingredients for an omelet and set them out on the counter. As he sliced the onion, he heard a noise behind him and glanced over his shoulder. Sarah sat at the table watching him with her ice-blue eyes. She wore a red silk dragon kimono. Brian had brought it home from his last trip to Japan nine or maybe ten years ago. How'd you sleep? She said. As good as can be expected. He felt a tear form in his eye. Was it the onion? Or something else? He drove the knife down into the cutting board just a fraction harder than before. You went to church yesterday. Did you talk to Father Blake? He shook his head. Didn't seem like it was a good time. You really should talk to him. He might be able to help you let go. Brian glanced at her, admiring the almost flawless skin on her heart-shaped face. He'd always loved the faint dusting of freckles around her nose, her cheeks so soft. He wiped his eye on his shirt sleeve, then piled the chopped onion to the corner of the cutting board. He grabbed a green pepper and started to chop again. He seemed shaken up during Mass. Whatever happened at the Reynolds house affected him badly. He barely got through the homily. You're skirting around the issue. Brian grabbed two eggs and cracked each into a glass bowl. With a fork, he stirred the eggs vigorously. I'm not just telling you what happened yesterday. Don't you want to know about my day? I want you to move on. Brian turned up the heat on the stove. I need to see Lyle and Mick today. See if I can get more details about Saturday. They were tight-lipped when they left the Reynolds place. Mick even looked a bit shaken up. Brian. He dumped the chopped peppers and onions into the skillet and caught their aroma as they began to sizzle. The Post-Gazette stuck a story about it on page three, just a couple paragraphs. Looks like they know about as much as I do. With a spatula, he shuffled the vegetables around the pan. I wish you could have been at Chris's party Friday night. We had a great time. He's a riot. You'd like him. Brian pulled a pitcher of orange juice from the refrigerator and filled a small glass. Leaning against the counter, he sipped from the glass and studied her, taking in every detail. Even without makeup, she was as gorgeous as ever. He recalled with vividness their first meeting. He'd been passing through Atlanta's Hartford-Jackson International Airport on his way to cover an important meeting of the United Nations Security Council. She was headed home to a family reunion in Louisiana. Their flights were both delayed, turning a chance conversation into dinner at the airport's TGI Fridays. Through fourteen years of marriage, she had seemed to defy the passing of time. 
remaining just as lovely as when they'd first met. A few strands of her tawny hair fell across her right eye. She didn't move to correct it. You're staring at me, she said. Have I told you lately that I love you? She smiled at him, nodding her head. Yes. Sometimes I think I don't say it enough. She frowned and closed her eyes. You say it too much. Far too much these days. I can't help it. Sarah leaned forward. When was the last time you told Allison you loved her? Brian chewed on his bottom lip. It was a low blow, but not one that he didn't expect. His daughter was coming up far more frequently of late as a topic of conversation between them. Sarah usually used it as a rebuke of sorts. He refused to get angry at the subtle reprimand. After all, Sarah was right. It had been far too long since he last spoke to Allison. Your veggies are burning, Sarah said calmly. The acrid odor behind him was strong. He spun around and was greeted by whiffs of smoke rising from the skillet. The green peppers and onions were blackened. He lifted the pan from the stove and, with a spatula, toyed with the scorched vegetables before letting the charred remains of his breakfast slide from the skillet into the nearby trash can. Brian sighed, set the pan in the sink, and turned back toward the table. The room was empty. Brian strode into the Newark Municipal Building, waved at Erica Taylor, the young police officer seated behind the reception desk, and made a beeline across the marble-floored foyer toward the two elevators on the far wall. One floor down, he was greeted by another police officer seated behind a half-wall topped with a thick glass partition. A voice crackled through a small speaker embedded in the glass. Hey, Brian, come on through. The door to the right of the counter buzzed, then clicked. Brian pulled on the handle and stepped through the open doorway. A thick-set officer rose from his chair and reached over the counter to shake Brian's hand. What brings you here? I'm looking for decorating tips, Frank. Brian smiled. Is Lyle around? The police officer snorted, then leaned on the counter, his elbows propping up his broad chest and shoulders. Nope. He's up with the mayor. He paused, as if checking to see if anyone was within earshot. The chief is on a rampage this morning. Stewie is looking for ways to... He raised his hands and made air quotes with his fingers. Reallocate the budget again. Brian smirked at the irreverent nickname for Jacob Stewart, the city's mayor. The animosity between the police force and the mayor's office had become a bit of a legend around the city. I'll try to steer clear. Is Mick here? Frank thumbed over his shoulder toward the hall behind him. In his office. Thanks. Brian made his way along the hallway, passing the squad room on the left. Four rows of empty chairs faced a solitary podium at the front of the room. Further down, Brian stopped at a partially open door. The silver nameplate beside it read, Michael Flanagan, Detective. Brian knocked on the doorframe. Yeah? 
Mick glanced up from behind his desk when Brian pushed open the door and stepped into the office. A blue-striped tie hung loose from the collar of Mick's white Oxford shirt. Brushed back and neat, his ginger hair was the opposite of the tussled mess it had been on Saturday. A day or two of stubble was around his mouth and chin. Trying for a goatee again? Did you come here to mock the facial hair challenged? The detective closed the manila folder he'd been reading, left it in the middle of the desk, and waved toward a nearby chair. Come in. Sit down. Once seated, Brian said, You gonna fill me in on Saturday? What? No hello? No good to see you? No how's the family? A laugh escaped from Brian's lips. Hello. Good to see you, Mick. How's the family? Fine, thanks for asking. Did you know that Cheryl's pregnant? No! Congratulations, Mick. You're first, right? Brian said, recalling the excitement he'd felt years ago when Sarah had told him she was pregnant. It seemed like only yesterday that he had held his own daughter, Allison, in his arms. He feigned a smile to hide a sudden pang of heartbreak and guilt. Mick nodded, his face beaming with pride. Yep. Brian gestured to the black and white photo framed on the wall behind the detective. A young man in a dark suit, posing beside a 1940s police car. Your great-grandfather would be proud. Mick spun his chair around and looked up at the photo. His smile was broad when he turned back. They'd spoken many times before of the great esteem that Mick had for his ancestor, the first detective on the Newark police force. Yeah, he would be, wouldn't he? Brian gave him a nod, pulled a notepad and pen from his coat pocket, then said, Now, tell me about Saturday's murder. Mick tapped his fingers on the desk, then leaned back in his chair. Robert Reynolds stabbed once in the heart. His wife and daughter found him sprawled out on the sofa. They'd gone to New York City the evening before to catch a Broadway show. Found him when they returned on Saturday. Brian clicked his tongue and shook his head. Hell of a thing to find. Any suspects? The detective's mouth turned down. You know I can't tell you that. Robbie Reynolds was a big name in this area. One might say he was Newark's self-proclaimed real estate king. Self-proclaimed is right, the detective said. Ever been to his office? Not overly impressive for someone who's supposed to be a hotshot real estate agent. Maybe he doesn't like to appear too flashy. Have you heard his radio ads? There was a sarcastic edge in his voice. Brian snickered, recalling the over-the-top commercials on the local Delaware radio station that had made Robert Reynolds a minor celebrity around Newark. Anything else you can tell me? Mick's hands rested on the folder. Not at the moment. Brian eyed the folder. From his angle, he couldn't read the words on the label, but could imagine what they said. A loud voice bellowed into the office from down the hall. Flanagan! The chief's back. Mick rose from his chair. I'd better go see what he wants. If I'm not back in five minutes... Brian smiled and waved at him. I know. I'll let myself out. Once alone, Brian checked the door. Mick had left it half open 
blocking most of the view into the office for any passerby in the hall. Brian reached over the desk and picked up the manila folder. Mick's crime scene notes were on top. He skimmed through the details about the placement of the body, witness statements, and evidence gathered by the county's forensics team. He reread one paragraph twice. A loaf of bread? Further in the folder, he found the crime scene photos. Brian glanced over his shoulder at the door and listened for approaching footsteps. Nothing. So he stole a glance at the first photo, then flipped through the rest in the pile. One photo showed Robbie's body stretched out on a leather sofa. The spotlessness of the room surrounding the corpse stood in stark contrast to the crimson stain of blood on Robbie's white shirt. Brian's eyes were drawn to the loaf of bread amid the blood. He jotted down a few notes in his notebook. The next photo was a close-up of the loaf of bread. It had been split in two, with each piece soaking up blood like a sponge. Between the two pieces, a stubby handle protruded from the dead man's chest. The diminutive knife handle was wood-clad, a rich golden honey color. The wood looked unused, as if the knife was brand new. The sound of footsteps from the hall reached Brian's ear. He hurriedly closed the folder and placed it back on Mick's desk. He had just enough time to settle back into his chair when the detective came through the door. Sorry about that. Mick said. The chief wanted to rant about Stewie again. No worries, Brian said. I should probably go anyway. He rose from his chair as Mick patted the folder with his hand. Did you see everything you needed to? Mick asked. Brian chuckled. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Did you see the message? Brian lowered himself back into the chair. What message? The one on Robbie's forearm? Mick opened the folder and sorted through the photos. He pulled one from the back of the stack, a photo Brian hadn't had enough time to see. This is off the record. Brian took the photo from Mick and studied it. The close-up of the dead man's forearm showed a jagged line of letters scrawled in crimson. The handwriting was clumsy and irregular. The dried blood still held a faint, congealed sheen in the light of the camera flash. The seven capital letters spelled a single word. Cheater. Chapter 7 Candace pushed open the large arched door of St. Matthew's Catholic Church and stepped into the dim sanctuary. Her gaze drifted along the center aisle and then up toward the ceiling. The woodwork of the vast cathedral was ornate and picturesque, far more than her own church. The gray morning light filtered in through eight stained glass windows that ran the length of the church, four on either side. The reds, greens, blues, and yellows were muted by the overcast weather outside, the sun hidden behind clouds. Shadows draped across the rows of wooden pews like a painter's drop cloth. She allowed the thick wooden door to swing closed behind her with a deep thud. The sound reverberated through the vaulted ceiling. The Monday morning gloom matched her mood. 
She'd not slept well Saturday or Sunday night. She tossed and turned, haunted by Robbie's blank eyes in her dreams. After Sunday's church service, Candace had tried to call Andrea at her parents' house to find out how she was doing. But there had been no answer. Perhaps the grieving widow preferred to be left alone right now. Candace moved down the aisle toward the church's single occupant. Andrew was seated in the first row, facing the altar, and didn't seem to notice her approach. He stared at the immense golden crucifix hanging from the wall behind the marble altar. The face of the crucified Christ was bowed and seemed to peer into the sanctuary with half-closed eyes and a deep, painful frown. It was a striking contrast to the simple wooden cross that hung in her own church. Hey, Andrew, she said. He didn't acknowledge her greeting. I wasn't sure if you'd be in here, she continued. But when you didn't answer the door at the rectory, he remained still and silent. Candace peered down at him. Andrew's hands were clasped on his lap. They were trembling. She placed her hand on his shoulder. Andrew? He jumped at her touch, turned, and glared up at her. For a moment, there was fear in his eyes. A soul-wrenching fear from the darkest depths of the heart. Then a sense of recognition filled his face, and he tried to smile. It looked forced. Sorry, he said. I didn't know you were here. I didn't mean to startle you. Candace studied him for a moment. There were shadows beneath his eyes, and his salt and pepper hair was disheveled. He turned his gaze back to the giant crucifix on the wall. He wrung his hands together. She took a seat next to him. Are you okay? You look as if you haven't slept. He waved away her concern. Yeah, just had too much coffee yesterday. He averted his eyes. What brings you here? I hope it isn't to play chess. Not really in the mood this morning. Chess was the furthest thing from her mind. She shook her head. No chess. Just needed to talk. Andrew straightened up and turned her way. His eyes lit up, and the fatigue she'd seen in his face a moment ago seemed to wash away. That was something she'd always admired about him. His ability to instantly transform into a caring man of God, no matter his own current plight. She wished she had that superpower. How can I help, he said. Candace took a moment to wrangle her muddled thoughts into something marginally coherent. I can't stop thinking about Robbie Reynolds, she finally said. I had nightmares about him. Andrew nodded as if he understood. Violent crime can come as a real shock to someone who isn't used to it. He looked through her with a gaze that was a million miles away. You think you can handle it? Control the emotional rupture it creates. You put on a brave face and hope no one notices. 
you breathe deeply, but it burrows into your soul. The violence replays itself again and again, reminding you of your own impotence against it. He stopped speaking, his eyes still locked on something unseen behind her. Andrew? Her words broke the spell. He looked at her and smiled. Sorry, was thinking of something else. Candace turned to stare at the altar. This is something way outside of anything I've experienced before. She clasped her hands and rested them in her lap. I grew up in a small Kansas town where we left our doors unlocked at night. Crime was a non-entity in Bridgewater Falls. She glanced at him. He nodded, as if to direct her to continue. In seminary, they taught me how to provide spiritual comfort to those who were suffering, taught me how to pray, how to say all the right words. Helping people cope with death was something I expected with this vocation, but... She closed her eyes, recalling the ghostly pale complexion of Robbie's face. They never told me how to cope with murder. Andrew reached over, took her hand, and gave it a gentle squeeze. It's the same thing. Death is death, violent or not. The family needs comfort either way. Candace rose from the pew, turned, and looked down the aisle toward the back of the church. The vast, empty sanctuary suddenly felt oppressive. The dark shadows seemed to be closing in on her. But where do ministers go for comfort? Who relieves our burdens and our grief? Isn't that what God's for? Candace grunted. I was hoping for something a little more tangible. Andrew frowned. You've got me. There was disappointment in his voice. She gazed at him and smiled. Sorry, I didn't mean. I know what you meant. He grinned at her. Just remember that I'm here for you. She returned to her seat and leaned forward, allowing her hands to dangle between her knees. It's just, I'm not used to staring death in the face. Candace leaned back and felt the hard wood of the pew press against her spine. Did you ever meet Robbie? No, can't say I have. Candace looked down at her shoes. Her blue canvas vans were faded. The once white rubber soles were more of a faint gray from years of use. They were the perfect analogy for her waning faith. A great guy, she said. If you don't believe the many rumors, she added in her head. Always there with a smile for anyone who needed it. Then again, smiles are cheap. Quite the marketer. I doubt there's anyone in Delaware who didn't know who he was, Andrew said. She opened her mouth to speak, but was interrupted by creaking hinges on the door at the back of the church. Candace turned and caught sight of a figure silhouetted against the gloomy light from outside. The man stepped into the church and pushed the door closed behind him. 
His footsteps echoed through the sanctuary as he walked along the center aisle toward them. Andrew, he said. He halted when he saw Candace. Sorry, didn't realize you had company. Andrew rose from the pew and smiled. No worries, we were just chatting. Candace felt the warmth on her cheeks, a mix of annoyance and embarrassment. She didn't have a monopoly on Andrew's time, but the interruption seemed ill-timed. She had a momentary urge to shout, I was here first, but she balked at the thought. How would that sound? A 33-year-old minister whining like a child over a popular playground ride. But she wanted, no, needed, Andrew's help and advice. As the newcomer approached, she assessed him with an eye that was tad more judgmental than she knew it should be. The man wore a brown tweed sports coat and faded jeans. The coat hung open and looked as if it would be impossible to button because of the rotund stomach that protruded from beneath its folds. Beads of sweat formed along his high forehead, and his breathing was slightly labored. Andrew shook hands with the man, then gestured to her. Have you met Candace Miller? No, I don't believe I've had the pleasure. The man extended his hand toward her. His grip was firm and his palm sweaty. She tried not to flinch at his touch. Alex, Candace serves at Trinity Episcopal Church over on the corner of Haines Street and Delaware Avenue. She's an exceptional chess player. Sometimes she even puts me to shame. He turned to Candace. Meet Alex Brennan, a professor of religious history at the university. He's written a couple books, been to the Holy Land, and has guest lectured at half the seminaries in the country at one time or another. The man blushed at the priest's embellished introduction. He turned his eyes downward for a moment and then smiled. That intro gets more grandiose every time you tell it. Next, you'll have me finding the tomb of Christ. Andrew chuckled. But Candace sensed a tired edge to his laugh. Religious history was always my Achilles heel in seminary, she said. Except for Martin Luther. I did my thesis on him. Fascinating man. Really? His eyes narrowed as he studied her. That's interesting, very interesting. His eyes locked on hers and lingered. She suddenly felt vulnerable, almost stripped naked before the intensity of Alex's stare. The back of her neck prickled, and Candace found it hard to pull away from such a domineering gaze. She finally stepped back and turned away from Alex. Andrew, I better go. Andrew frowned. So soon? Don't leave on my account, Alex said. I've got a few errands to run, Candace lied. She looked at Andrew. I'll call you later. Chapter 8 Sitting at his desk, Brian reread the first line of the article on the front page of that morning's Newark Observer. He didn't like it any more now than when he wrote it Saturday evening. 
It had been a rush to get the edition sent off to the printer before Sunday. He'd worked feverishly through the night changing the front page to accommodate the breaking news about Robbie Reynolds' death. On Saturday night, there had been little to report other than the death itself and that it was under investigation. But Brian made sure to deliver all the facts he knew to his dwindling readership. He set the newspaper down on his desk. How much longer can I keep this going? The newspaper was barely limping along. In the five years that he had owned it, the Newark Observer had only made money in one year. Every other year, it barely broke even. And the past year, it had lost money. He figured he had another two, possibly three years, left before it threatened to eat through what was left of the settlement money. When it was all over, what would he have? One building with an empty office on Newark's Main Street and an apartment on the second floor. Over the past couple years, he'd had offers to buy the Observer. A regional conglomerate that ran over 20 small-town newspapers had expressed interest in purchasing the newspaper from him. These days, it was all about consolidation of resources, cover the broadest of territories with the fewest number of journalists. Despite his previous global journalistic status, Brian believed that the best journalism came from locally-based reporters with solid relationships rooted in the community, like those he'd established with Newark's police department, the mayor's office, the university's administration, and many others. A car honk from outside drew his eyes to the large picture window of the Observer office. The early afternoon traffic on Main appeared unusually heavy. He was half tempted to step out to see if there was an accident further up the one-way thoroughfare that might account for the increased bottleneck, but he resisted the urge. Brian looked over at the three nearby empty desks. The newspaper kept a small staff, himself, two part-time reporters, and Jessica, his photographer. Liam Poole, the youngest of the two reporters, had gone up to the university to cover a press conference while the other, Chloe Williams, was away on vacation. He smiled when his eyes fell on the third desk. Jessica would wander in when she wandered in. Getting her to keep regular office hours wasn't worth the aggravation. Across the office, a ceaseless clicking drew his attention to the front desk. The needles in Mildred Smith's hands flashed like lightning. The 67-year-old receptionist was absorbed in her knitting drawing lavender-colored yarn from a bag that sat on the floor beneath her desk. He tried to recall what she was making without success. A scarf? A sweater? Or even for whom she was making it? His hope was that it wasn't for him. He smiled as her head bobbed in time with each click of her needles. Her dark, wavy hair was only speckled with gray, making her appear younger than she was. Mildred had joined the small newspaper two years ago after finding her retirement from the post office to be far less exciting than she'd anticipated. Her willingness to answer phones and manage the newspaper's correspondence had been a godsend for Brian. As the newspaper's owner, editor, and only full-time reporter, he'd been struggling to keep the day-to-day -day operations running smoothly while also pursuing stories for the next edition. There was one other thing that Mildred brought to the newspaper that had become invaluable to him. Information. Mildred was an interminable gossip.
He leaned back in his chair. What do you know about the Reynolds family? I'm not one to talk ill of the dead, but they're the biggest bunch of liars and cheats in Newark. She stopped knitting and set her needles on the desk. She glanced in his direction. Well, excluding our illustrious mayor. I'm not sure I'd say Jacob Stewart is... Word on the street is that Robbie was having an affair. Brian laughed, knowing that her word on the street was a group of elderly women who met every Saturday at the Main Street Diner for lunch and an afternoon of gossip. An affair? I thought he was... You know I'd never say a bad word about anyone, but odds favor that bimbo who answers the phones at his office. Big boobs and a personality as light as a helium-filled balloon. At least that's what I hear. Real airhead, if you know what I mean. What would you expect from someone who calls herself Cupcake? So he wasn't a shining example to husbands everywhere? Nope. And that wife of his, she isn't much better. A drunken little shrew. That's what Andrea Reynolds is. Just about every Saturday night you can find her at Gaelic Arms or the Snootful. Mildred shook her head as if in disgust. Usually needs to get an Uber home because she can barely find her car, let alone drive it. Sylvia Bavistock sees her at church every Sunday, dark glasses and a puss that looks like she's been sucking lemons. Brian knew about the Irish pub on South College Avenue. He'd been there more than once himself. Isn't Saturday karaoke night? Yes, and the drunker she gets, the worse she sings. Not that she could sing to start with. Sounds like someone's dragging a porcupine across violin strings, so I've been told. What about their daughter? She frowned at him. Brian, you know I don't like to gossip, especially about children. Sorry, I didn't. There was a bit of bother back when she was born. A story was floating around that she wasn't Robert's child. Andrea was seen quite a bit with some student from the university. He left town shortly after she got pregnant. Someone told me there might have been a payoff involved. Brian picked up a pencil from his desk and twirled it between his fingers. Raises some interesting questions. Maybe the real father came back to stake a claim. The office door swung open and the sounds of the busy street filtered in along with Jessica, dressed in gray cargo pants and a blue t-shirt. Hi, guys. How's it? Brian waved at her. Hi, Jess. Jessica crossed to a desk in the far corner, tossed her black canvas messenger bag onto the chair, and hiked herself up on the desktop. Her black combat boots thudded against the desk as she folded her legs beneath her. How was the wedding? said Mildred. Jessica pulled the hairband from her ponytail and ran her fingers through her strawberry blonde hair. Totally bitchin'. Gathering a handful of her shoulder-length hair behind her head, she slipped the hairband back into place and then fanned the newly made ponytail out with her fingers. Got some unreal shots that completely rock. They're gonna love the proofs. Bryant smiled at the spunky 23-year-old. Her sharp, pale green eyes were masterful behind a camera viewfinder, taking photos that a veteran photojournalist would envy. He had no doubt she had the raw talent to be highly sought after by all the top magazines. In many ways, she reminded Brian of himself when he was her age, hardworking, enthusiastic, 
unaware of the true potential behind her talent. The difference between them was that Brian had ventured forth, making a name for himself in the industry. Jessica was satisfied with remaining in Newark, building a reputation as a top-rated wedding photographer, as well as the Newark Observer's photojournalist. She was still young. Given another few years and things might change, Jessica said, So Chris's shindig rocked? Yeah. It's a shame you couldn't make it, said Brian. He's a little creepy, Jessica said. You don't just ask to feel someone's face. He's blind, Jess. How else is he supposed to know what you look like? It's just weird. Jessica slid out her legs and let them hang over the edge of the desk. Heard Robbie Reynolds got whacked over the weekend. We were just talking about it when you came in, Mildred said. Don't let me stop you. Let's hear all the juicy details. I was up to see Mick this morning. There isn't much to tell yet. Brian rose from his chair and crossed to the coffee machine along the far wall. Stabbed with one upward thrust to the heart, he was laid out on the sofa. Perhaps Andrea had had enough of his little games, Mildred said. He poured himself a cup of coffee, then shook his head. Seems she has an alibi for Friday night. Brian took a sip from his mug. Mildred, do you know anything about Candace Miller? The priest at the Episcopal Church on Haines Street? Not much. Why? Do you think she had something to do with the murder? Brian snickered. No. Just wondering. She was at the Reynolds house after the murder. Father Andrew drove her over. Does Flanagan have any suspects? Jessica asked. Brian returned to his seat. None that he'd tell me about. He set his coffee mug onto the desk. It's all a bit out of the ordinary, Jess. In what way? Brian proceeded to detail the crime scene photo that Mick Flanagan had shown him. Jessica sat attentive as he detailed the torn loaf of bread and the bloody word written on the dead man's arm. Mildred seemed to take the second point as vindication of her earlier analysis of Robbie Reynolds's character. She wore an I-told-you-so smugness in her half-smile and mumbled inarticulate words of affirmation. When he concluded his narrative, Brian fell silent and waited for his companions to comment. Jessica was the first to speak up. Wicked! Brian leaned forward and rested his elbows on the desk. I'm glad you're so enthusiastic. Jessica's shoulders dropped and she let out an exasperated exhale. Damn! You want me to do something, don't you? With all the wedding work you do, I figure you've got an inside contact over at Barley's Bakery. I guess, Jessica said. All her enthusiasm was suddenly gone. See if they make a dark artisan bread like the one found at the murder scene. If they don't, ask if they know any area bakeries that do. As it closed in on five, Mildred began to pack up her knitting and slipped the work in progress into her bag along with her needles. Jessica had left the office half an hour earlier. Don't stay too late, Mildred said. 
Brian looked up from his computer, nodding. I'll try not to. She frowned. Brian Wilder, don't patronize me. It's not good for you to work all the time. He couldn't help but chuckle. Mildred's admonishment was a regular occurrence, and rightly so. He spent far too many nights working late in the office. But it beat the alternative of returning to his apartment and wallowing in his own grief. Mildred's rebuke continued. You need to get out. Find yourself a nice girl. Brian forced a grin. He had a nice girl. One he loved deeply. But he didn't dare tell Mildred that. Perhaps you're right. Stella Fairchild's daughter is single. You and she would make a lovely couple. Mildred slung her knitting bag over her shoulder. I could speak to her. Brian shook his head, rose from behind the desk, and crossed the office. Better to leave now before she starts taking her matchmaking too seriously. He placed a gentle hand on Mildred's shoulder. Come on. Let's close up shop for the night. I'll walk you out. The evening's chilly air sent a shiver down his back as they stepped out of the office. Brian pulled the door closed and turned the key in the lock. The block letters in the plate glass picture window beside the door read, Newark Observer. No glitz or glamour, just matter of fact. He'd often thought over the past five years about updating the lettering to something a bit flashier, more modern. But after spending a week mulling over the idea, Brian would always decide to leave the window the way it was. No point in messing with a classic. He glanced up and down the street and noted the college crowds that were already filtering out of their dorms for an evening's revelry. Brian turned to Mildred, who'd pulled a shawl over her shoulders to stave off the brisk March air. She gestured to the second-floor windows of the Newark Observer building. Don't you go up there and work. His eyes followed hers up the tan brickwork to the darkened double windows of his apartment's living room. They looked empty and lifeless. I won't. See you in the morning. Mildred shook her head, as if to tell him she knew he was lying. Good night, Brian. He watched her walk almost a block down Main Street before moving the short distance to a solitary white door situated on the opposite side of the office window. The brass knocker on the door was tarnished with age. The narrow black mailbox that hung beside the door contained three pieces of correspondence. One bill, one solicitation from a charity, and a sales flyer from a local grocery store. Brian unlocked the door and climbed the stairs to his apartment above. He paused at the top of the stairs. His gaze fell upon an 8 by 10 inch photograph, framed in black, hanging on the wall. It greeted him every night. As much as it hurt for him to see it, he never moved the photo from its place at the top of the stairs. Brian peered at the woman and young girl centered in the picture. The woman's ash-brown hair was brushed over the right side of her face. Her blue eyes stared forward as if looking straight at him. Her white sleeveless blouse was appropriate for the beach, which acted as the photograph's background. He remembered the beach well on a small Caribbean island called Sainte-Marie. The young girl was resting her head on the woman's arm, 
eyes closed as if asleep. The girl's hair, the same color as the woman's, was pulled back into a ponytail. He touched the lower corner of the frame. I miss you, Sarah. That crime scene definitely sounds like a scene. What's with the loaf of bread on the body? And why did the killer call Robbie Reynolds a cheater? And that Father Blake is acting rather suspicious. Why is he so reluctant to speak to Brian about the crime scene? Tune in again for answers. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to None Without Sin now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. You can find Michael Bradley on social media at mjbradley88. And make sure you follow us at camcatbooks. Tune in to hear all our audiobooks as we release them right here on Camcat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will be available for free listening only for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books, including interviews with the authors, editors, and other industry professionals. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.